0: This is Exchanges Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're here in London today as part of a closer look at European markets and themes, and we'll be talking today about renewable energy in Europe. I'm joined by Alberto Gandolfi, head of European Utilities Research Team in Goldman Sachs Research, and we're going to talk about the region's renewable transformation from the declining cost of wind and solar power to the role electric vehicles are playing and much, much more. Alberto, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Jake, for having me.
0: So you recently wrote about the plummeting costs of wind and solar here in Europe. Give us a brief overview of the picture here in the European market.
1: We've been doing extensive work on renewables because it really started as effectively function of very strong policy by the European Union. But quickly, the economics of renewables are taking over and they're becoming as important as policy. And we think in the future, they're becoming more important. Just to give you a couple of stats. The cost of producing electricity from solar photovoltaic has dropped by about 80% since 2010 and the cost of producing electricity from wind onshore or offshore that it is has come off between 50 and 70% so really these technologies used to be subject to incentives that's how european union started to have its policy because they were extremely expensive but in several regions of europe right now renewables are way way cheaper than any other technology. So we think they're going to displace conventional generation over the next decade.
0: So it's been a policy case, now it's a market-driven phenomenon. What changed in the market? Why, Why did the prices come down so dramatically?
1: It depends by technology, but effectively the most spectacular reduction in prices was seen in solar. Solar started as a niche, incentivized, subsidized market, largely in Germany so effectively thanks to the scale that the business created we have seen manufacturing started to move out of germany into china or we should say that chinese manufacturing has been way more cost competitive and initially labor cost was cheaper then the size of factories got bigger and now we're starting to have better processes robotics and all of that so the costs really has come down by a factor of almost literally 80 90 percent in terms of capital spending per megawatt let's say per module produced and this has been a big driver for solar for wind it's slightly different What has changed in winds is that the sheer size of the machines has just exploded. If you drive in southern Spain and uh, I mean maybe you're a windsurf fan and you go to Tarifa in Andalusia, very windy, lovely area, ideal for wind farms. Most wind farms built 15 years ago, 20 years ago were less than one megawatt. In 18 months, 24 months time, the key manufacturers in Europe are coming out with four megawatt machines. So we have a Fourfold fold increase in capacity per windmill. That's extremely important because the capex per megawatt, the invested capital per megawatt has remained largely constant in the past five years, But bigger machines produce much more energy and much more electricity. So the cost per unit produced has been plummeting. So this has been really a very important driver.
0: So as costs for wind and solar drop and they displace conventional fuels, gas, nuclear, coal to some extent, what's happening to the consumer? What's the consumer seeing? Are they seeing a benefit?
1: today? Not at all, quite the opposite. So if you look at countries such as Italy or Germany, even more of an obvious example, nearly 20% of the electricity bill is dedicated to paying for subsidies for old renewable capacity. In other words, your electricity bill would be 20% cheaper if renewables did not exist at all. So quite a lot of people might be inclined to think renewables are actually expensive, they are making my electricity bill way more expensive. To me, it's a problem for myself. Actually, from now onwards, the marginal capacity that is going to be added into the system is going to be, in our opinion, deflationary. Because you take, again, a key example, Spain, which we think is a precursor on solar. Developing solar in southern Spain today can be done at least 50% cheaper than any other technology. So if you add solar in Spain, prices are going to come down between 20 and 40% over the next 5 to 10 years.
0: So it's near term, relatively near term. It's yeah.
1: relatively near term. In the
0: utility world right, things yes. sometimes move slowly. Yeah. So you wrote a bunch about how the economics in Spain are particularly attractive. Why is it? Is it just sunnier or what is making Spain a leader in this space?
1: Well, Again, initially it was policy. Spain had a big blackout in 2001 when suddenly in supposedly a warm region of Catalonia, you went to minus 10 for a couple of weeks. And that was a wake-up call. So the government started to incentivize conventional capacity. And as a pilot test, they also started to incentivize wind. Then the economics started to improve. It was gradually less of a burden on the tariff. And now suddenly, because of the reasons we just discussed, they actually are going to be deflationary. Now, what makes Spain really well suited for solar. It's very sunny. It clearly varies on irradiation, number of hours of sunshine, and Spain is very well suited for that. Also, Spain is low densely populated, so there's lots of space to simply develop this equipment. And Spain has a very good infrastructure because the flip side of building lots of renewables is that the electricity grid is going to come under pressure and under stress. And the Spanish grid as of today can cope with the amount of renewables that we are seeing because it's actually quite, quite stable.
0: So, even though Spain has some unique features that makes it a leader in the space, you've written that Spain could also be a precursor of broader trends that will drive really the whole global market. So, while Spain's unique, why are the trends we're seeing there going to spread?
1: Well, look at California and replicate what I just told you in terms of space, in terms of sunshine. Maybe the network isn't as strong and stable, so there will be more investments necessary in the network, but there's several parts of the world where this trend is going to replicate. Think Australia. Think about every island that is not connected to mainland where the main source of electricity is a very expensive diesel, fuel, oil, power station put solar, put batteries, put some windmills. This is exactly what's happening in the Balearic Islands or the Canary Islands of Spain and this is what can happen in many other islands around the world.
0: So Europe has led the renewables transformation. How far is Europe so far in the transformation you're predicting?
1: So we are halfway through compared to 2030 and we are probably about the third compared to 2050. These are very long-term trends, as we mm-hmm. discussed in renewables. Why am I saying that? Right now, let's say in 2018, less than 30% of production in Europe comes from renewable sources, wind, solar, hydro. The targets that have been set by the European Union for 2030 imply that at least 55% of production will have to come to renewables. If you assume a little bit of demand growth from now until then, it means that the actual output from renewables needs to broadly double. That's why we're 50% there. And if you take 2050, there are no European targets, but some countries that have taken a bit of a leadership, like Germany, they do have targets and Germany is planning to achieve 80% of its electricity production from renewables versus just over 30% today. That's going to be a big game changer with many other ramifications on electric grids, potential electric vehicles, storage, interconnections across European countries. It will push a holistical redesign of the power system.
0: So if you take those numbers and look at the rest of the world how does the rest of the world stack up against the leader far
1: far 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 behind if you exclude latin america because of very attractive hydro resources they are already there those numbers are less than half of what we discussed in other developed economies now china is coming up very strongly I think there's been a big aha moment in 2015 where the world realized that China started to put environmental policies a little bit more at the center of their priorities. And we have seen ever since a major acceleration of renewable development in China. Last year, China accounted for about half of all the solar installations in the world.
0: European companies are getting a head start, they're growing faster, they're deploying this technology more, they're building scale. Have they started to expand and we're going to see them show up more and more around the world as the leaders in this alongside maybe the Chinese companies?
1: Yes, I would say so. On the development side, particularly, the European companies were early movers. They had an expertise, which they acquired in Europe, and they started to replicate that and export that abroad. So very early on, companies such as Iberdrola, EDP and then Enel have started to expand and develop renewables in North, Central and South America quite successfully because scale is also quite important in this business. Like, let me take a company such as Enel. NL is bidding almost 15000 megawatts of projects every year to be awarded between 3 and 5000 megawatts now what does that mean it means that actually a pretty sizable developer if lucky would build 500 megawatts per year And these guys, Italian-based companies, suddenly can do up to 10 times more in any given year because they have built a phenomenal development machine with business units really across the globe. China remains a bit of a closed market, but everywhere else, you'll find European utility bidding, could be offshore in Taiwan, it could be offshore on the east coast of the US, where Iberdrola has just been awarded a very sizable lot, it could be onshore, solar in the US, it could be Australia, it could be Southeast Asia, Middle East, you really find that these companies are truly global and actually leaders. Now, three European companies are in the top five global developers in the world.
0: We've talked a lot about Spain. Let's look at the rest of Europe and how they stack up against the revolution that's happening in Spain. Today we're sitting here in London, sunny, but the UK industry maybe not as well suited for solar. Give us a little look at how different parts of Europe can respond to this revolution in renewable energy.
1: There's different technologies that apply to different regions. So if I want to be extremely simplistic, I would say that the northern part of Europe, particularly if you take North Sea or Baltic Sea, are really, really well suited for offshore because you can produce 40, 50% of the time, huge machines because you don't have uh, bottlenecks in terms of roads, how to get there and install these very high pylons is a big problem. So big scale projects, Perfect, and that is going to continue. The offshore business started in Europe is now starting to be global, but Europe is the key market. Then you move gradually in the central Europe where you have a combination of onshore wind and solar, and when you move south, talking about particularly Spain, Italy, Greece, Portugal, their solar takes a much bigger market share, in our opinion, going forward. And Italy, we think, is another key example, partly because it's very sunny in the south, partly because the wholesale power price in the region is quite high. So that's an opportunity cost. If the wholesale power price in Italy is 60 euros per megawatt hour, and you can build solar at 20, 25, you will see a mushrooming of development, which is what we have precisely seen in countries like uh, Spain, where we have a huge pipeline of projects of independent developers that want to produce merchant, i.e. taking a power price risk, or they want to sign a long-term contract with an industrial customer.
0: How about corporates outside of this sector, companies like ourselves, Goldman have agreed to buy power from a certain source and allow the development of renewable, sometimes called PPAs or power purchase agreements. But having that locked in supply, locked in demand, leads to the creation of supply in places where it might not otherwise be economic.
1: That's a very good point. Historically, you were building renewables because some government was putting together a policy and was saying, okay, it's a land grabbing exercise, go and find a farmer that can lease you the land and if your measurements stack up and you fill all the right documentations, which in Europe tends to be pretty heavy, then you buy your equipment, you're producing electricity, we will guarantee you top line for 20-30 years. Then the governments realized that it was more efficient to do auctions, so nowadays auction is the name of the game. Why is auction important? Because it typically captures the cheapest source and the cheapest option at any point in time. So all developers are competing for the same lot, let's say, and typically returns have come down a bit because of that. But the new trend, which is complementary to all we talked about, is really signing a corporate PPA, this power purchasing agreement. You are Nike, you are Google, you are Apple, or you're Goldman Sachs, you want to go 100% consumption from renewables. And what do you do? You can either become a utility and build solar parks or wind, or you can go to utility and say, you're pretty good at developing. Clearly, you can do it cheaper than I do. Why don't we sign a long term contract, i.e. a PPA with a corporate, so that for 10 years, 20 years, I have a guaranteed output with a fixed price, maybe inflated, maybe not. So it has several advantages. First, it makes the world greener secondly it's actually locking in the cost of electricity for many years so suddenly it's an input cost you sort of don't worry about it's just inflation very fixed
0: yeah. So we talked a little bit about how this is affecting power prices or will affect power prices. How's the traditional industry responding?
1: Slowly is the answer. Utilities are not innovators. You know, this is the most distant thing from Silicon Valley, probably, you can think of in terms of speed of change. So initially, utilities reacted very slowly. They did not see this trend. Some companies, particularly in Germany, did not realize that they were sitting on one of the most flourishing markets for renewables. In fact, those were actually the companies that eventually had to take very drastic measures. For instance, in 2016, the two incumbents in Germany broke their business model up in two parts and they effectively spun off the old conventional generation which has been more and more and more under pressure because of renewables. I mean, this seems kind of normal in a corporate finance textbook, but if you think about a utility in developed Europe, this was pretty groundbreaking and radical as a transformation. The reason I also said slowly is because In our opinion, power prices in Europe will face a 20 to 40% downside risk because if you are replacing power at 60, to use the example of Italy, with power that will cost between 20 and 30 and coming down, over time the power prices will come under a lot of pressure. So, in our opinion, what companies should do is most likely to continue to spin off these activities, creating bigger conventional generators, which you'll be running for cash and pay loads of dividends out of free cash and raise your hands and value them as a finite entity as opposed to sticking to it, because we think that we'd be burning a lot of cash when you come to decommission them otherwise.
0: So you mentioned electric vehicles. Talk a little bit more about the demand side. What's going to happen with the electrification, and what role do you think that'll play in building demand for power?
1: That's a very important point, because the beauty about a gas plant or a nuclear plant is just that you turn it on or turn it off, and gas can actually be quite flexible, whereas solar and wind, you cannot control how much power you produce from them. You're subject to weather, and solar produces, by definition, maximum 12 hours a day. When it's dark, it's not producing and most of its production is between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. So if you start to go in a world where 20-30% of installed capacity is solar, for instance, you're going to have a structural oversupply of output during summertime or spring, and especially during the weekends when offices are shut, factories are closed, and maybe you indulge yourself in sleeping a little bit longer, and suddenly there's lots of solar production because there's no weekday or weekends for solar. So suddenly what's going to happen is that you have a lot of excess of demand that either you need to put into a battery for a later time, or perhaps, considering that the marginal output would be very cheap, you can put that into the electric vehicles. That's one very pragmatic example on how electric vehicles can feature into this new power system. The second point is that if the share of renewables is increasing in the system, a larger and larger percentage of your electricity bill will be fixed because it will not be subject, as it is today, to input costs such as coal, gas, carbon. And that will make electricity costs more predictable and we think eventually will make electricity costs much lower because the 20% of subsidies for renewables we discussed in the next 10 years will largely be gone. So you can move into a world where you're stripping inflation largely out of electricity bills for quite some time, and electricity bills are getting lower. It could be almost, not quite as much, but almost as radical as shale gas has been for the US. And if you go for very cheap and predictable electricity, you could suddenly, as an entrepreneur, be tempted to switch some of your gas processes to electricity processes in a factory, for instance. And if you're building a new block of apartments, maybe you're not going to build all the infrastructure for a pipeline of gas to heat the apartments. You're just going to go for electricity, connect the cable, and then predictable renewable facilities from a cost perspective will be able to supply power there and help you heat
0: up the space. So you mentioned that Europe has targets on renewables, but targets on their own don't do much. What else could Europe be doing to maximize the penetration of renewables?
1: That's a good point. Targets help uh, and overall awareness on environmental matters also helps. Um, I think you need a little bit more of enablers, particularly the grid. The power distribution and power transmission grids are extremely important because the volatility of supply that renewables bring puts quite a lot of stress on the networks. And if you start to add electric vehicles and if you want to have intermittent recharging, otherwise the complexity of the system explodes and otherwise people would all charge the cars at the same time. 6, 7 p.m. at night, then what you want to do is to effectively upgrade the degree of digitalization of the grid. So there's quite a lot of investments in the grid uh, to simply be able to manage flows much better for the grid to self-heal, to control the frequency. That's the first point. The second point is that considering the regional biases we talked about earlier, offshore in the north, onshore everywhere, solar in the south. If you think about it, right now, Europe is made up of four five island power markets. You need to interconnect Iberia with France and Central Europe. You need to interconnect Italy with France and Germany. You need to interconnect UK and Nordic with everything. So that's more investment in transmission, so that offshore wind in the north could actually power Italy in the south when uh, the sun is not shining.
0: Are there not incentives today for the investment in the transmission?
1: well on paper but there's a bit of nimby culture if i use an american term at the local level there were so many delays for an interconnection anecdotally between spain and france because there were some issues about protecting local bears in the pyrenees so just to give you an idea and that's just a small example to tell you that On paper, everyone knows that it's for the greater good, but when it comes actually to authorizing Mm -hmm. cables going through mountains and natural reserves, then the local politicians can really slow down the process.
0: That's not just a European phenomenon. So how long have you been covering the utility space?
1: Just over 16 years. It's been so transformational that uh, I still find it exciting as day one, still learning a lot.
0: Yeah, so would you have expected 16 years ago that you'd be an expert in solar and wind? Was that even on the map then?
1: No, not at all, not at all. It was considered niche, it was considered like a sort of a vagary of European politicians and I suspect that five years from now, well I hope, that I'll become an expert also in batteries and more and more in electric vehicles.
0: So you mentioned a couple times batteries and the role storage plays in the intermittency of these new technologies. Is Europe leading the way on the revolution in battery technology as well and how are they looking at storage?
1: Actually, no. I think the US is actually leading the race for batteries, and partly maybe thanks to Elon Musk and the Gigafactory. But clearly, we have seen a couple of renewable developers in the US offering an integrated solar plus battery offering and be quite successful at it. We've seen Nextera, we've seen Excel Energy, for instance. The European developers are nowhere near, partly because there are parts of the US which are more suited to introduce batteries. Think about, for instance texas as a key example but partly because actually think the european companies on this specific technology and trends they've probably been sitting behind they're trying to catch up because clearly they're quite big in the u.s but i would argue the u.s are probably two to three years ahead
0: excellent well alberto thank you so much for talking us through this
1: thanks to you it was a pleasure
0: that concludes this episode of exchanges at goldman sachs thanks for listening and we hope you join us again next time
2: This podcast was recorded on August 2nd, 2018. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener.